Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Hosea chapter 13. By the end of our time together today, we will have worked through an entire book in less than three months. The last one took us three years. So it's a little shorter, but I'm still taking the wins where I can get them. We've moved all the way through the book of Hosea, and hopefully by this time you've heard that Hosea kind of moves in these cycles. We went through the whole book in a single chapter in chapter one. Sin, judgment, redemption. Kind of given in vague form there. We did that cycle again in chapters 2 and 3. Sin and judgment and redemption. And then over the last several weeks, we've been working through the long form of that in chapters 4 through chapter 14. This long look at sin and judgment. And 14 is going to close with redemption. We've come through chapter after chapter after chapter of dealing with Israel's covenant failure before God. And by this point, you have to understand, they are a people who have no excuse. They are not failing because they don't understand. They are not failing because they don't know. They have every reason, every warning, every potential opportunity to turn, but in their pride and their stubbornness, they refuse to. And so they are going to be judged, and they are being judged, and we can see by the end of this that they deserve to be judged. They deserve to be swept out of the land. Not just swept out of the land, they deserve to be destroyed. But then chapter 11 gives us this picture of a God whose heart is torn even as he judges his people. In his holiness, God deals with sin, and God is more holy, more pure, more perfect than we can even imagine. But that same holy, sovereign, just God is a God of mercy, and his heart breaks even at the rebellion of his people. His longing is for their restoration, for their repentance, something that they cannot and will not do on their own. So what is it going to take for Israel to change? If judgment's not the end of the story, and it's not, according to Hosea, how does Israel change and what will that look like? Today, what we're going to look at is the final word. The final word from the final prophet. Maybe you remember all the way back to the introduction of this book that Hosea is the last prophet to the northern kingdom. For 200 years, God has waited. He's it. So what is the last word of the last word? That's where we're going to go today. And to kind of set the stage, at least for the second half, which we'll get to eventually, I want to open our reading in Hosea 14, starting in verse 1. Hosea 14, starting in verse 1, this is what God's word says. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. Let's pray. Lord, you made it really clear that sin is a serious thing. But Lord, our flesh, our natural tendency is not to take sin seriously. We take Israel's sin seriously. We take others' sins seriously. But how often do we excuse or minimize or distract from our own? But Lord, in your mercy, you sent the Son to die for our sins. So Lord, even as we work through this Old Testament book that points to the holiness of God the justice that must come. Lord, bring us back to the mercy of God that provides a sacrifice to cover our sins. Open our eyes 
so that we might see wonderful things in your word. And then, Lord, don't allow us to stop at knowing and understanding. Move us toward responding with obedience. And we need your help to do all of those things. And so we ask in Christ's name. Amen. When a disaster of any kind happens, we go back and we look. We kind of take stock and pull it apart and see what went wrong. Uh, a coach will watch game film after his team gets blown out to see what happened. What plays were run wrong? What did the defense miss that allowed the other team to score? Uh, when an airplane crashes, the various federal agencies will come in and they'll sift through the wreckage. They'll look for the black box. They'll put together what led up to the crash that claimed those lives. And sometimes when a person dies, we'll perform an autopsy. We'll look at the body of the deceased and we'll evaluate what signs and what symptoms, what diseases were there that ultimately led to death. One of the... Uh, commentators that I was reading this week called chapter 13 in particular uh, the autopsy of a nation and I, I can't do any better than that so I won't try that's really what we're going to look at in the first part of today Israel we know is sinful and rebellious chapter 13 paints kind of this final picture of Israel as a spiritually dead people laid out on the table and God examines and lays bare what went wrong. We're going to look at the path of their rebellion. We're going to trace kind of the pathology of sin and how it not only came in and not only how they practiced it, but how it ultimately ended up killing them. It's what's fundamentally wrong with the people. But we are going to finish with chapter 14 because after all of her sin and all of her rebellion, judgment's not the final word for Israel. God makes this beautiful promise of restoration. So let's open this up and let's look at the path of rebellion. And the first step in that path, as we look at Israel laid out before us, the first step in that path is really uh, this pride that leads to death. There is deadly pride that was present in Israel. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. Lots of times, especially in the book of Hosea, when we've heard the term Ephraim, it's one of the tribes of Israel, uh, one of the northern tribes, and we've used Ephraim to refer to the nation as a whole. Hosea does that a lot. Uh, Ephraim might refer to the whole northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, that's not the case here because Ephraim and Israel are both used in the same kind of phrase here. So he means something distinct. Uh, if you look at the next slide, there's a map up there. And I want you to remember a couple of weeks ago that uh, Dr. Bealey spoke about Joseph. Now, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son among the 12. And as they were promised to go into the land that God had prepared for them, each one of those 12 sons, each one of those 12 tribes was promised an inheritance. But as you look at this picture, if you can see that far, you might find that there's no Joseph allotment among the tribes. And there's a reason for that. And it's because Jacob gave Joseph something of a double portion. He blessed both of his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Joseph wouldn't get a single inheritance as that tribe in the land. They would get two. So you see Manasseh and Ephraim there in orange and purple. And Ephraim was actually the more honored of the two. And Ephraim as a tribe has a fascinating history. They're a very important tribe. Some critical figures come from there. Joshua comes from Ephraim. The first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, comes from Ephraim. Ephraim is a powerful tribe. They are a wealthy tribe. They are often a rebellious tribe. If you read through the book of Samuel, they push back hard against Judah and against the kings that God has installed. So Ephraim, for all their size and for all their wealth, 
their prominence is never a means to blessing. Their size always leads to pride, and their pride actually always leads to judgment. And what's our example? It says, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Here's the thing. Israel, in particular Ephraim, is kind of this microcosm of the whole, this picture of the whole nation. Ephraim, as a prideful people, assumed that they could do whatever they want. Because when you have what you need, who needs God? And Ephraim assumed that their strength was their stability, and in their strength they could worship how they want, they could live how they want, they could act however they want. And so they incur guilt through Baal, through worshiping those idols, and they died. The pride led to death. That is a very final statement on the nature of the people of Israel. They are dead, and we need to understand that that is how God sees them. They are waiting for physical judgment, but spiritually, they're already dead. And tragically, it's not even over yet. It says, now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. Israel, when they're warned, Israel, even though they have fallen so far away from what God calls them to, they don't stop. They keep compounding sin after sin, and, and it's pictured in how much care they put toward their false worship. And there's something that we don't see in the text here, but if you've read enough of the Old Testament, some of those terms sound familiar, the idea of fine silver and, and skilled craftsmen. If you were to go back to Exodus, you would see that there was another time when the people collected gold and silver. There was another time when skilled craftsmen were used, and it was when God gave them the pattern for his tabernacle. See, the best that the people had to offer was supposed to be devoted for, to God, and really kind of the, the sickening turn here is that they take the best that they have, they take the brightest of the people, and they're used to devote to idol worship. It's said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. They've gone so far that they really participate in the most kind of horrible and despicable things you can imagine. Human sacrifice, kissing metal images. And these are the people of God. They're supposed to be different, and they look just like all the nations around them. So what's going to happen? Verse 3, God says, Therefore they shall be like the morning mist, like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. In their pride, Ephraim is a picture for Israel as a whole. In their pride, they assumed that they had what it takes to sustain themselves, that they were lasting, that there was something staying and permanent about who they were. And now God not only says you're dead, but you're temporary. Your pride has blinded you to the fact that you are nothing more than a vapor. They'll be like the morning mist or the dew that goes away early, uh, like that coolness that seems to come out in the morning, but then again, as soon as the sun hits it, it's gone. It'll be like chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, and uh, it would take the wheat and the grain, and they would pile it in the center of a hard surface, and then they would crush it down with stones or with animals, or they would beat it down, and it would start to separate the valuable parts from the useless parts, the chaff. And then they would take a fork, and they would throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow away the light, useless stuff, and the heavy, useful, valuable parts would fall down. God says, Israel, you are like that useless, temporary stuff that just gets tossed up and blown away in the wind. No staying power, no value, nothing that lasts. 
You're like smoke from a fire that billows. Smoke that comes and rises, but then you open a window and it's gone. Every time I make bacon, for some reason, the smokiest food ever, and it seems to fill that room and kind of start to sting the eyes, but then you open a window and it's gone. No power, nothing lasting. See, in pride, we assume that something is established and strong and lasting. Israel, in their pride, assumed that they could weather whatever storm was coming. God is reminding them that you're dead and that you're temporary. You have completely lost sight of the fact that your size won't save you. Your strength won't save you. Your wealth won't save you. So Israel has been consumed by deadly pride. But what else? What else characterizes this people? Not only are they prideful, but Israel has suffered from deadly self-sufficiency. In their pride, Israel assumes that they can provide for their own needs. Look at verse 4. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no Savior. God says, not only am I all that there is, there's no God besides me. But Israel, look back through your history. You haven't known anyone but me. From Egypt, from the Exodus, from the time I brought you into the land, you had no other God. I was the one that did all of those things for you. I was the one that provided for you. Verse 5, it was I in the wilderness, I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. Go back and read the Exodus and look at the state of these people. They're a group that come out from slavery that God remarkably provides for. They walk across the Red Sea on dry land. They walk through the desert and they drink water out of a rock. They eat manna from heaven. They walk around for 40 years, even in judgment, with sandals that don't wear out and robes that don't fall apart. And just a simple, cursory, quick glance at Israel's history, even through the wilderness, should make it very, very clear that these are not a people who provide for their own needs. These are not a people who have the ability to sustain themselves. But what happens? Verse 6, But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up, and therefore they forgot me. See, here's what happened. God provided for Israel. God gave them everything they need. God put them in a land that was His. God moves them into cities with houses that they can live in that they don't have to build cisterns where they store water that they didn't have to dig, vineyards that they eat from that they didn't have to plant. God moves them into a turnkey situation of blessing and prosperity. And Israel, rather than becoming thankful, Israel got fat and spiritually lazy. They are like well-fed, well-grazed cows. And when they had grazed, they became full. They get fat and spiritually lazy. So what's going to happen? Verse 7. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I'll tear her open their breast, and I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. Lions and leopards and bears. Oh, my. Now, if you are a fat grazing cow, none of those animals are good news. God says, you're not strong and powerful. You're not self-sustaining. You can't defend yourself. You're like a fat piece of livestock that's just tempting for any wild animal that comes by, and I am going to consume you in judgment. Verse 9 says, he destroys you, O Israel. 
for you're against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I take him away in my wrath. So where are those kings, Israel? Where are those ones who you're trusting in to supply you? Where are the ones that you're trusting in to defend you and to meet your needs? Because remember, Israel said, we can establish our own kings. God said, kings are from David's line. They rule in Jerusalem. Israel said, no, we'll do it ourselves. We have our own kings. We have our own way. Even well before that, the people of Israel in general, when they first moved into the land, before it's divided, the fact that the people wanted a king was not a good thing. Way, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people cry out for a king. This is before David. This is before Saul. The people cry out for a king. And Samuel says, you don't want a king. When you have a king, what he's going to do is he's going to take some of your young men and he's going to send them off to war and they're going to die. And when you have a king, he's going to take other young men and he's going to make them work in his fields. And when you have a king, he's going to take the best that you have and he's going to give it to his friends. And when you have a king, he's going to take more of what you have, and that's going to be taxes. And when you have a king, what's going to happen, Israel, is you're going to cry out and complain to God about that king. And when you do that, God's not going to listen. And so what the people say is, oh, well, that's a good point. Maybe we should rethink this. No. (laughs) Tragically, they don't. (laughs) They say, no, but there shall be a king over us so that we may be like all the nations. That's what Israel said. We want a king. Why do you want a king? We want a king so we can be like all the other kids on the playground. We want a king because they got a king. And they got a king and they got a king. And we're here with judges. We're here just supposed to rely on judges and God to defend us when all these strong nations around us have a king. And the point was, yeah, you are supposed to be completely different than all the other nations. And Israel trades in the security of God and the provision of God to be just like everyone else. So God is going to judge their foolish attempts at self-provision. Looking at the spiritual cadaver of Israel, they are dead in their pride. They are dead in their assumption that they could provide for their own needs. And finally, we're going to see that Israel dies in their stubbornness. Israel has been warned. They've got the law that tells them how to live as God's people. You didn't need a seminary degree to understand how to live in fellowship with God. I know there's a couple of kids in here. Kids, again, we'll go sixth grade and below. Anyone tell me what the first commandment is? Ten commandments. The the basics of the basics of the law. Can any kids in here tell me what the first commandment is? Any idea? Parents, you can help them. God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods but me. No other gods. That is very, very clear. And yet, what does Israel continually do? They set up their own gods. They worship the gods of their neighbors. And not only do they have the law, but Israel has the warnings of the prophets. They've got the writings of the Psalms. They've got the speaking prophets. Uh, By the time you get to Hosea, Amos has already come before this. And when we get to Amos, you're going to see how much overlap there is. Hosea's not bringing a new message. He's round two of the same thing that Amos said. 
You are sinful. You are walking right into judgment. You need to stop. You need to turn. You need to change. You need to repent. And in his kindness, God has also already started to discipline them. God is already causing the nation discomfort and even pain. And you say, how is that kindness? Because remember, the judgment of God is designed to turn these people back. It is designed to bring them back to him. Obey me, and if you don't, I'll shut off the rain, and I'll make the earth hard like bronze, and then maybe you'll listen. And if you don't, then I'll send the wild animals, and maybe you'll listen. And if you don't, then you'll know defeat at the hands of your enemies, and then maybe you'll listen. And if you don't, all the way up to including the point, then I'll remove you from the land, my land that you're polluting. Every step along that was designed to give them pause, to shake them and call them back to their senses and say, stop what you're doing. This only leads to destruction. It's a reminder that the way of the sinner is hard. To live in obedience would have brought them blessing and freedom, but they refused to listen. Nothing is going to make them go. The thing is, in their stubbornness, they won't let go of their sin because they love it. They cling to what is precious to them. And they stubbornly refuse to let go. And look at verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. That's kind of a frightening statement that we might read past too quickly. Think through as you've read your Bible, what are some of the things that God keeps in store, that God stores up? You read books like Job and... uh, It says that God stores up the snow and the hail, this picture of God's awesome power over every part of his creation. You read Psalm 33, and it talks about God storing up the waters of the deep, the idea of, again, power and control and knowledge over every part of his creation. Psalm 31 says that God stores up abundant goodness for those who fear him. Psalm 56, 8 says that God stores up our tears in a bottle. The idea that God intimately knows everything, that God has boundless capacity to provide for, to protect. Now you read that same knowledge, that same sovereignty, that same wisdom, that same power into verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. That is a terrifying statement that not one thing has escaped God's notice. Every sin, every failure, every failed sacrifice, every wicked king, every surface-level attempt to worship, every heart attitude that never even got spoken, God knows, and God is storing it up for judgment, and they're going to receive exactly what they're due. And here's the problem. Here's why it's coming. Because verse 13, the pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of a womb. Israel is stubborn like a baby that refuses to be born. What a weird picture. But here's the thing. There's supposed to be this natural progression that leads to childbirth. A woman gets pregnant. The baby is in her womb for a set period of time. And then as the time comes, things begin to happen. Baby turns, contractions start. There's pain that moves the baby toward the opening of the womb. And then the baby's born, and there's life, and there's relief from the pain. It's this natural progression that's supposed to happen. And God says, Israel is like a baby who sits at the doorway of the womb and doesn't want to come out. Everything has been prepared. The time is right. The contractions have come. There is pain that lets Israel know that this is the time to turn and repent. And they sit there and they say, no, we're not going to do it. What happens when a baby would not be born? What would happen in that situation? Death. 
constant theme in chapter 13. The baby that doesn't enter the world properly is dead. Israel is going to die in their stubbornness, and the rest of the chapter really is God's commentary on what has to come now. Because of their pride, because of their self-sufficiency, because of their stubbornness, judgment is coming. He is the one that would save them. He stands ready to redeem them. Verse 14, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, or, that's asked as a question, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Hopefully that sounds familiar. Paul picks up those same verses, those same themes in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the resurrection the promise of eternal life through the eternal life of Jesus Christ. See, that hope was available to them. Even though Christ is 700 years in the future, God stands ready and able to forgive them. Not just to excuse sin, but to really redeem them, to really bring them into the place of a restoration of relationship. But for now, compassion is hidden from my eyes. Why? Because they cling to sin and they refuse to repent. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. God says an east wind is coming. Now, when we think of a wind, we've got two kinds of wind here. One of them comes from the west off the ocean, and it's nice. We like those. We like those blessings that come and the relief and the cool that comes. But then we have the east winds, the Santa Anas those Santa Ana winds that come, and if we think those are bad because we get a little hot and we get a little dust in our eyes, these are the Santa Ana winds on steroids. These are winds that come ripping across the barren deserts to the east of Israel, and they are not only hot, they are stripping. It's like a sandblaster to crops. This is a picture of judgment and judgment that is coming quickly on these people. See, Israel is a dead nation. And they're a dead nation that is about to find that there is no hope in their own strength, in their own power, in their own might. Samaria is going to bear her guilt because she has rebelled against God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed to pieces. Their pregnant women ripped open. A graphic picture of what God is going to do because Israel is dead. So where do we go from there? Because, boy, does that sound final, doesn't it? Part of the fear of death that is really all over our culture is the fact that death is final. It's an end point. Death kind of stops us and sobers us because it's an end. Now, we as believers know that it's not the end. And in his mercy, death isn't the last word in Hosea either. Because God's going to move now and show us the promise of restoration to his people. But what's going to happen? What's that going to look like? For restoration to happen, what has to change? Well, the first thing for restoration to happen, the first thing that has to change is there has to be real repentance. Now, this isn't a new idea. Chapter 3 says that the people are going to be restored when they finally seek God and when they seek David, their king. We know in chapter 7 it says they cry out, but not from their heart. We know that God says he's far off, that he's standing away from them, 
until, there's been this kind of until theme running through, I'm going to judge you until you turn. So what does that until look like? What does that turn look like? Well, it looks like chapter 14. Look at 14 verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. There's something remarkable there. But it only comes when you read it in relation to chapter 13, because in chapter 13, God started out by saying, Israel fell and stumbled in their sin, and they died. God is speaking to dead people. God would only do that if he was able to bring the dead back to life. And what he's going to say is this restoration, this promise of new life, is going to involve real repentance. And real repentance, real change, is going to bring the right words. Look at verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Now, not just seeing that God has torn them. This isn't just an assumption that God is going to bring them back to what they were. This isn't them saying, God, take away the punishment and the suffering. Remember, they already cry out to God. They already know they're suffering. They already say, you have to make this stop in their pain. This is different. What do they say? Not take away the pain, but take away all iniquity. Lord, fix what's broken. They've never dealt with their sin, but the time is coming when they will. They're finally going to realize that they have sinned, and number two, that they can't do anything about it. They're dependent on God to restore them. And those right words then lead to right worship. Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. It's an interesting verse because depending on how you translate it, it can either mean uh, we are going to pay the vows that we pay with bulls and offering, or we're going to give you the words that we say like bulls brought to offering. I'm going to suggest that it doesn't matter which way you take it. Uh, The point is the same, that those words, those right words that acknowledge sin, that cry out for help to God, then become the means of offering God acceptable sacrifice. And that acceptable sacrifice never stops with just the right words. See, remember, the sacrifices in Israel weren't the problem. Leviticus is kind of strange and foreign to us. It's kind of bloody and gross, but the sacrifices weren't the problem. The sacrifices were God's gracious gift that said, this is how a sinful people live in the presence of a holy God. The sacrifices were this wonderful picture of sin bringing death, but something standing in your place. They they really covered sin for a time, and they anticipated the greater sacrifice of Jesus Christ that could cleanse sin once and for all. The, The sacrifices were never the problem. The problem was doing them with no heart behind them, right? But now, the right words are going to bring the right sacrifices. Like Psalm 51, verse 16, when David says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. They are going to come with that offering of a broken spirit, a contrite spirit, a repentant spirit. And when that happens, the right words bring the right actions. Paul kind of says a similar thing to us as believers in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We don't bring bulls and goats. We bring everything. Our spiritual worship is the devotion of our whole self, mind, 
heart, affections, attitudes, body included to God. See, it is assumed that a people who turned and repented would then worship God in the right way. And it's not just the right words, and it's not just the right worship, but this genuine repentance is going to be characterized by the right faith. They're going to trust in the right things. Look at verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. We shall not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. Finally, they're going to recognize that Assyria won't save them. What was Israel's consistent go-to response when there was trouble? Build up the army, strengthen the king, store up goods, And if all else fails, go to Israel or go to Syria for help or go to Egypt for help or go to Babylon for help. Find somebody stronger to come alongside us and help us. There's going to come a time when this real change, this real repentance that actually brings restoration is going to cause them to have faith in the right thing. They're going to finally understand that God alone can save them. They're not going to trust in Assyria. They're not going to trust in horses or armies or men. They're going to have faith, and not just faith, but faith in the right object, the God who can actually meet and supply all of their needs. And all of that is driven by a right understanding. Look at the very end of verse 3. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Remember that pride that killed them? There's no pride left in that statement. We're not Ephraim, the proud and strong. We are not Israel, the firstborn of God. We're orphans. Lost, desperate, alone, wholly dependent. And it's in you, O God, that the orphan finds not just provision. In you, God, not the orphan finds what he deserves. In you, the orphan finds what? Mercy. Israel is finally going to come to a point where they understand that what they need is not a king. What they need is not armies. What they need is not even food. What they need is mercy. More than anything else, they need this holy, sovereign, just God to be merciful to them in their failure. That is real repentance, and that is what is going to bring about this restoration. And the beautiful thing is that God is faithful. God is faithful to his every promise. He was faithful to bring them into the land. He was faithful to bless them when they obeyed. He was faithful to discipline them when they failed. And he's going to be faithful to return when they repent. Why? Because he said he would. What does restoration look like? If real repentance brings restoration, then what does real restoration look like? I'll look at verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. The first thing is that it does is it brings healing. I will heal them. Remember, their their problem's a heart problem. And they can't fix their heart. They can't do anything to alter the state of their rebellious nature. God says, I'll do it for you. The first beautiful promise of restoration is that he is going to heal what they could not heal. More than that, he says, I will love them. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned from them. What's the visual picture behind this whole book? It's a marriage. Hosea faithful as a husband, called to love a woman who's not faithful. Gomer, a wife who had been nothing but loved, nothing but cared for, who continues to stray to go after other men. And in chapter 3, when God speaks again to Hosea, what does he say? He says, go and again love a woman who loves other men. Not just go, grab her by the hair and bring her back because she belongs to you, but go and love her again. Why? 
Because God is not just going to clean Israel up and put her back on track. God is going to love Israel again. The one who was called no mercy, the one who was called not my people, is going to be loved and showered with God's affection again. What else will restoration look like? They're going to be healed. They're going to be loved. They're going to be provided for. Verse 5, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He'll take root like the trees of Lebanon. Last chapter. God is the east wind that strips and destroys everything. Now God says, I'm going to be like the dew. Like the calming, cooling dew. That promise of refreshment and restoration. How has Israel been pictured? Like something that is withering and dying. Moreover, like something that's already dead. And they shall flourish. The blossom like the lily. No longer like this dead thing that's an appalling, ugly thing to look at. Now they're going to be beautiful and growing and vibrant like a flower. Israel, when they experience God's restoration, will be healed. They'll be loved. They'll be provided for. And finally, Israel is going to be established. He'll take root like the trees of Lebanon. His roots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. Remember what the king was like a couple of chapters ago? Like a twig tossed about on the ocean? Everything in Israel in their rebellion pictured as something temporary, something that is drifting, something that is not lasting, something with no uh, staying power at all. God says, when I restore you, you are going to be like something rooted, something planted, something that is not only alive, but something that is growing and thriving. Their beauty shall be like the olive, his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Israel was going to get famous in their judgment. As the nation saw them, it would be like this terrible thing that made people say, what happened here? Israel's going to be famous again. But it's going to be because of their beauty and their restoration. And it's not because of them. When Israel is restored, when their glory is known, when their blessing is clear to anyone with eyes to see, it is not going to be because of who they are. It's ultimately going to be because they dwell beneath his shadow, because they're his shoots, because God is the one who does this for them. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. When Israel thrives, they are finally going to produce the fruit that God had always called them to. They were designed as a nation to be a light, to show what living in the fellowship of God Almighty looked like. God is going to bring them back and restore them to the purpose that he designed them for in the first place. And it's not going to be on their own strength. It's going to be because they're finally rooted and grounded in him. So where do we go with all that? One of the really neat things about my particular vocation is that I get to be with people during important times. In fact, that's one of the really neat things about being part of a body of believers as a whole. 
You and I get to share in the matters of life and death, the matter of really important things with people. You and I get to celebrate births. We see babies born and we rejoice. We watch kids grow up. We see them have relationships and get married and have kids of their own. You and I get to visit people in hospitals, bring meals, give rides. We get to sit next to those who are growing older and help them move. You and I get to go to memorial services where we remember lives well lived and we consider a God who is eternal and life that is fleeting. You and I have this wonderful privilege of talking about things that really matter, matters of life and death. Hosea has presented matters of life and death to the chosen people of God. And he says, consider these things. This is how he closes. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Our world thrives on shades of gray. Our world promotes individual reality, uh, subjective truth. Hosea calls us back to what's real. He says, here's reality. There are two ways. There's the way of understanding, and there's the way of foolishness. There's the way set before you of obedience, and there's the way set before you of disobedience and transgression. There's a way set before you that leads to life, and there's a way set before you that leads to death. Choose wisely. Because your heart lies to you. Your sinful heart will tell you that you are enough. That you're good enough, smart enough, strong enough, able enough to figure this out on your own. That in your strength, you have what's necessary to stay around for the long run. That in your autonomy, you can live your life however you want. That in your freedom, you can worship however you want and that there is no consequence. And God says, no. There is a God who is holier than you can imagine, more powerful than you can comprehend, and one who is perfectly just. But there is a God who is merciful, who calls you to himself, and the way to life and blessing and prosperity, not just here, but in eternity, is through humility. God doesn't want you bigger, badder, better. God accepts the broken, the orphan, and he makes them sons and daughters. Three things for us to think about as we head out today. First of all, we need to consider the patience of God. More pointedly, how do you treat the patience of God? Israel had 200 years, 200 years of rebellion and wickedness where God waited. He warned, he judged, but he was so patient. I don't know how many more days you have left, but I know that you have today. And the author of Hebrews says, while it's today, don't harden your hearts. I don't know if you're waiting. I don't know what you're waiting for. 
God is not delaying because he's forgotten. God is delaying because he's patient. Second, what does worship look like? One of the things that we saw all the way through this book was a picture of surface-level worship, religious actions that were really only skin deep. So here, today, what does your worship look like? And I don't mean how well did you sing. I don't mean how many notes that you take. I don't mean did you remember to drop your check in the offering box or not. I'm asking when we strip all of that away and look at the heart that only God can do, what did your worship look like today? What does our worship look like at any time? Maybe we ask it this way. Who gets our best? Israel was giving their best over to idolatry. Who gets your best? Is it your job? Is it your spouse? Is it your entertainment? Or is it the God that we claim is over and above all of those things? And finally, Where does your fruit come from? When you look at your life, who's responsible for the good things there? Because here's the danger, especially in our culture where you and I very likely have enough of whatever it is. When you look at that at the end of the day, who's responsible for that? Whether that's your physical provision or whether that's how you see yourself spiritually, who's responsible for your good? Because you and I have every reason and every tendency and every cultural inclination to be fat, lazy, spiritual cows. (laughs) Satisfied in our own provision. When the reality is that every good thing we do, every good thing we produce... Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this wonderful book. Uh, A book that shows us hard realities. On the one hand, we can't come through this book and see that there's anything good in us. Like Israel, we have turned, we have fallen We've pursued idols, and we don't keep them on our mantle, Lord. We produce them in our heart. So many things that distract us from you, so many things that take your place in our life, Lord. And each and every one of us stands guilty and condemned. And as Paul wrote, Lord, we're dead in our sins. And dead men have no ability to fix themselves. But God, Hosea also presents us with an understanding of your mercy that is shocking because you call the dead back to life. We've been made alive with you in Christ. Lord, would you help us walk in that truth? Help us to rely fully on you. Keep our hearts sensitive and broken over our sins. Keep our hope alive and well in your promise of mercy. Keep our witness strong and consistent, knowing that you are holy, that you are merciful, and that you're coming again.